0: For three evenings now, we've been talking about silence. Suggesting that it isn't something utopian and only for some mystics with eyes popping out of their heads who live in strange places, but it's a necessity. Certainly from the point of view of Dharma, tapping the silence that's intrinsic, it's our deepest essence of our nature, learning how to enter into this silence in the privacy of our own heart, which is where it dwells. and how to bring it into life itself. It's not a retreat or an escape. Although to begin with, it seems like we need a lot of help and a lot of special conditions to enable us to discover, to acknowledge, and then finally to be the silence itself. Please remember I'm including the full range of uh, what could be called the great silence, full and total enlightenment, but also those moments which we all have when the self-centeredness and the preoccupations about ourselves falls away or goes into abeyance. Perhaps those moments are all too few, but uh, based on the interviews, you're st- certainly starting to, to taste it. So it's accessible. It's not something out of our reach. Yesterday, Carrado <clears throat> was talking about living a life from ego as humiliation. Many, many humiliations if you live grounded in ego, if you're walking that path. However, uh, if the humiliation that comes from egocentric living is not practiced with, it can become bitterness and worse. But if it's practiced with, meaning directly observed and understood, it can be humility, can become humility. And we were kind of working out a connection this morning. I think the link, though, has to do with the art of observation. Because what does it mean to practice with the kinds of humiliation that come from egocentric living? All of them when we're attached to me and mine when this selfing is happening and inevitably it brings sorrow to us so it seems to me that um, the silence that comes from penetrating this humiliation or the sorrow that comes from attachment to me and mine comes about through observation and I think it's important to Go over that again, although a lot of it I think is obvious to you. Well, you've heard it many, many times, and so I'm just going to go over it again. The art of observation is basic for everything that we're doing here. We started off the retreat with the breath, using the breathing as a rather simple object, a natural and obvious one, and for most of us, not a problem, not problematic at least not deeply so, now and then it is for someone, to develop the art of observation, but so that we could then learn to observe uh, states that are much more difficult to observe. Let me suggest some of the things that are not observation when uh, difficult states arise for us, stuff that we don't want to be there. We have a lot of uh, practice either denying it. We're very, very skillful. We have many networks of escape. We know how to do that. We're all adepts at that. Denying it or drowning in it, getting lost in it, identifying with it, and being uh, swallowed up, burned by it, bitten by it. Different images used in the texts. And there are all kinds of subtle escapes, which perhaps don't seem to be escapes, but finally are, postponement, or as things come up and we don't really look at them directly. We cope with them. Sometimes we cope with them for years. We human beings have an amazing capacity to delay, postpone, hesitate, cope with, until finally, when we've exhausted everything else, when we have nothing else to escape to, we finally come to Wisdom kind of kicking and screaming as a last resort. Okay, I'll look at it directly. (laughs) Part of that is a conclusion. Uh, If you come to it, it has to be, not as an ideology, uh, really a confident one that there is no escape from suffering. I think that's what the Buddha is saying. There is no escape from suffering and yet we um, try so hard in so many different ways Escape. I'm not saying there isn't an end to it, I'm saying there's no escape from it. If you've seen that, if you've seen yourself wriggle this way and that way until finally there's no more wiggle room left, then that can give you tremendous energy to finally get on with it because you begin to see all the ways in which you're um, avoiding something that uh, can't be avoided. It doesn't go away by any of these other methods, and some of them get very close to being convincing and even satisfying, but they're not it. They're not direct observation. For example, in Cambridge and any place I think where there are uh, people who've had a lot of schooling and read lots of books, Buddhist and psychological and so forth, you can observe something And then the mind will come up with a brilliant explanation for what it's about, what's happening. And it is so satisfying. The mind is so flushed with the glory of how well it's understood what's happening, that it's finished. You know, you just walk away feeling, you are feeling better. You definitely are feeling better. But you haven't begun yet. (laughs) It's just that the mind has given you a brilliant out. And so then, for some strange reason, it reappears. And so little by little, uh, we start to learn about the art of observation. Um, in this art, we're not for or against what we're observing. There are no ideas in it. It's preconceptual. And the most important concept that's left out, of course, is me. I'm doing the observing. Uh, so for the moment, <clears throat> excuse me. we're getting closer now and then here it starts to be get, become rather refined and there may even be uh, different approaches within Buddhism. And so the one I'm giving you is the one that I have found most useful. There may be different ways of looking at it. I'm sure there are. Getting really close, we kind of detach from the object that we're observing, the form of humiliation or suffering. And it's as if we're on a mountaintop with binoculars and we're looking down at our own sorrow. It's still not there, in my opinion, although to begin with, I think we all start that way. And it can be a very important step in beginning to take our lives into our own hands. We are looking, but from what we consider to be a safe place. There's still separation there. There's still a lot of me there. There's still, the observation is colored with self, with self-pity sometimes, with fear, unknowingly. And the challenge is to enter into communion with the object. That sounds great if it's a sunset, you know, or a lover. But who wants to enter into communion with loneliness or fear? There were a few uh, notes that wanted to know. Remember, we made the possible connection between fear of being alone and the fear of dropping into silence, which is a kind of, it's in many ways similar, because you have to leave all the company behind, all your thoughts and ideas and all that, just temporarily, everything. You leave the world that you've constructed behind. And a few of the questions have to do, is it necessary to do long self-retreats in order to root this out? I would say no. What I mentioned was that it is extremely helpful to do it. Uh, But what you have to do is when, let's say, fear of being alone or fear of dying comes up, and there are many occasions when it can come up. It it doesn't have to be uh, living in a cave or some solitary place. You just become aware of it. You have to do this observation that we're talking about uh, and not skirt it. But then we run into a problem to enter into communion with fear. Do we really want to do that with loneliness, with um, anger, etc.? But I feel that's, that's what the, the, a real observation is. To begin with, when we attempt to look at anything as beginners, and that can be a while... Our observation is entangled with our psyche. And what we, we think we're observing, and we'll even report what we see, a lot of it, though, is colored with our projections of what we see, coming from our own uh, psychological history and so forth. That starts to fall away if you keep practicing. And then you start to see much more clearly, much more clearly, and there's less personal stuff in it. You're, there's less for or against, So maybe it'll feel as if there's no for or against. You're just right there with it. But there's still some separation. There's a self-consciousness of being a meditator, being an observer, being the one who is mindful. That's still very helpful. If you never get beyond this point, it's much more helpful than if you didn't learn the art of self-observation. But there, I think there's one more step to go, and that's where that kind of self-consciousness which is basically the ego dressed up as a yogi. (laughs) Really. It can be in monks or nuns robes or whatever outfits we have. Because it has found out that, okay, the other things are not too important to you. You don't want to be a millionaire. You don't want to be a Nobel Prize winner. You don't want to, uh, whatever it is, you want to be a great yogi. Okay, I'll give that one to you. So, It'll really want to be a really good observer, a good meditator. And that's why finally real meditation begins when we can see when the meditator ends. And it does end, and we've all had moments of it on this retreat. When there isn't such self-consciousness, there's just clear seeing. And then thought will jump in and appropriate it, take credit for it, start scheming and where it can go, and what it can lead to, and how I'm doing, and next step is Burma, whatever it does. <laughs> you know, you know. so now can we enter into a stage where there's no separation between you and what you're attending to and I'd like to give you a the reason I'm going into detail is because if we can get closer to it on this example it's a personal one then all the others are the same and very often a lot easier than the one I'm giving my father died a couple of months ago and Since I talk this stuff all the time, there's no excuse for me. I mean, I had to uh, do all the things that I've been suggesting and that Corrado has been suggesting all week with my own grieving. And I thought I did a pretty good job sometimes, a very good job sometimes, and at other times I was doing all those other things that were like observation but really weren't, or denial, or getting lost in it, or all of the above. I was no different than anyone else. Sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) But then I thought, finally, I was really open and very um, direct in my experience of grieving. Then um, I took his ashes to the uh, Parker River in Newburyport and sent it out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I thought I was pretty much done with the grieving, but I hadn't even begun. So when I got back where I was staying I had some quiet and I meditated and of course I had done lots of sitting with this for the weeks preceding this and uh, suddenly there was more sorrow than uh, I dreamed was possible uh, I thought I was finished with it but I certainly wasn't however there was something else and that's it It clarified the subtle ways in which non-observation happens or not non-observation but qualified kinds of seeing. Finally, they reached a point where there was such unwavering attention and intimacy with the sorrow that there was nothing else. There was just sorrow, period. Now, what does that mean? How does that compare with what I had been doing, which I thought was pretty good practice, very good practice? There were elements in the previous attempts Of self pity, small ones like my sorrow, this is happening to me. In that sense, it's not even about my father, it's about me. Or at other times, about my father. You know, he can't be alive, he can't be with us anymore. And there were subtle forms of separation uh, where ego was there in some way, not allowing the sorrow to fully. Flower. I'm using a positive image intentionally, because we don't usually like to use flowers for young people to flower and flowers to flower and civilizations to flower. IMS should flower. It is flowering. (laughs) But sorrow? But it's the same. What happened was there was no holding back. There was no calculation, scheming, and a direct penetration into this sorrow for an extended period of time. And then immense silence, the silence we've been talking about, you know, in that ballpark. Look, silence is so vast, I'm using that one word to cover a universe that is, goes from the most profound consciousness that humans can have to just some peace. I'm, I'm putting it all together so we uh, begin to be more at home with it and perhaps value it as a normal dimension of living. So I learned something from that. Uh, so by extension, whatever it is that is blocking you from coming to a quiet mind, uh, the main way to come to it is that you, uh, there are no shortcuts. Or as if you want the mind to be quiet, uh, among other things, we have to directly experience noise. In this sense. Okay, now let's say at a certain point... Uh, You know, we're flirting with silence. We walk up to the threshold. We have fear, fear of the unknown, which is basically, again, the ego, it seems to me, frightened about silence because one of the main things that it imagines will happen, it's actually true, it's imagining is correct, is that it won't be able to continue thinking about itself once it gets silent, and it just loves to keep thinking about itself. In fact, I think it's mainly what it does. (laughs) And it understands that in this new place, in the land of silence, there's no room for the ego. Because if the ego comes in, it's not the real thing. It's something else. So if there's fear that comes up, then we work with the fear. In the same way, you don't have to be on a self-retreat in a special place, but you do have to see how frightened you are of what you think it will be like when there's no thinking. When time falls away. When we don't have the company of all of our, my story, etc. Okay, Let's assume now we've entered into silence. We've discovered it and entered into it. What do we do now? Nothing. That's the whole point. But what the mind will do is plenty of somethings. Nothing means just be with the silence just con- it, it, it can be incredibly intense this silence <clears throat> can you just be with it but typically what anyone who's done this work finds is that we'll uh, have all kinds of programs about the silence first of all we may just tiptoe into it and then quickly run out again you know just taste it now it's safe get back into safe ego land Or we sit waiting for something to happen. Uh, We still, at some level, think that the point of meditation is special effects, like Hollywood special effects. Somehow inner Steven Spielberg. (laughs) And if it's ordinary or peaceful, how valuable is that? What, What use is that? And so we're sitting and waiting for something incredible to happen. And then we wonder why the silence just collapses right out from under us. So it's waiting without waiting. I mean, you're right there and just you're contemplating the silence. Or what other things that happen is that the mind will, the ego will come barging in and appropriate the silence, wanting to turn it into a personal experience, which of course then it's a contradiction. That's the end of that. It will start naming it. It will start weighing it, evaluating it. Uh, comparing it, sometimes seeing how it can write a publishable poem out of it. <laughs> <laughs> At least one that can appear in the magazine Insight. <laughs> okay. None of the above work. Okay. So it's again a surrender, the surrender we've been talking about regarding breathing is regarding all of it. The whole thrust of the practice, the way we're, we've been practicing, is to allow what's there to be there, for us to be with our experience exactly the way it is, because that's what our life is in that moment. Now, silence is uh, a very limited term to use for what I'm talking about. It sounds like perhaps it's not all that valuable. Maybe it's a break, you know, from the real thing in life. But the silence I'm talking about is not uh, vacuity. It's not um, blank, which some some of you have reported getting into blank states. You're not very clear, and it may be a little bit restful, but that's not what I'm talking about. The silence I'm talking about is highly charged with life. It is very alive. Couldn't be more alive. It's just that the energy that it's charged with is extraordinarily subtle and refined. So um, let's get that clear. I mean, silence doesn't have to apologize to action at all. In a healthy person and a healthy civilization, these realms are integrated. The actions grow out of depth. Uh, and then go back into depth for refreshment, for rejuvenation, for uh, because there's tremendous energy in that silence. It's a dynamo. More and more and more dynamo, and more and more and more subtle. And it has healing power on all levels, but it's not that you have to do anything to get healed, because the silence has a dynamic all its own it knows just what to do it works on us and it takes care of things and that's why uh, I have a hunch that most or perhaps everyone here has already tasted some degree of what I'm talking about because maybe you have a minute of, of a clear sitting when the breath is so fine and there's no thinking and uh, you, it feels like you're being breathed instead of you being aware of the breath. Uh, don't you find, even after just a minute or two, sometimes it's just a few seconds, that when you get up from that sitting, it's a different world? You know, that uh, green is green. The grass is green and the sky is blue. Someone asked, what is enlightenment? And an ancient master said, the grass is green, the sky is blue. And the, other, the person said, oh, for God's sakes. You know, children know that. You know. But you might discover that, that the grass is green and the sky is blue. (laughs) Uh, Also, people, especially if you've done retreats where you've gone, tasted a fair amount of of silence, you find yourself being more loving, more compassionate, and it's not from cultivating metta. Metta, in a sense, is working from the outside in, cultivating a very wonderful quality, human quality, of loving-kindness. But as you start to move inside more, without trying to cultivate anything, you find yourself more loving. And it's not that you have that as a project. I think I'll go into this retreat and try to become a very loving person. Not necessarily. I mean, you can have that, but that isn't what's going to do it. But So there's some, something mysterious. I certainly don't understand it. Uh, the Tibetans refer to it as the cognizing power of emptiness. or is this emptiness, when you go into the silence, it's pretty much synonymous is how I'm using the term. Why do we come out of it with uh, more intelligence, uh, kinder, uh, more alive, more sensitive? So there's obviously... Some something going on there. There's something that we have access to, and there's no energy crisis here. Inexhaustible energy inside. Moreover, that silence is not in any way harmed by however noisy it is. We could have uh, the loudest sound in the world explode right now near us. It doesn't affect the silence I'm talking about. This is not the silence that's the opposite of noise. You know, when you turn, the, when the refrigerator gets quiet, suddenly the kitchen's quiet, and the refrigerator starts making sounds. And it's a relief while the TV is shut off. This is an intrinsic silence. One of the main healings that can come uh, in our culture, so much talk about low self-esteem, high self-esteem, positive self-image, low self-image, negative self-image. And I don't mean to demean that, because uh, if you... F- feel very lowly if you feel very badly about yourself if you have images remembering they're just images but we they're powerful and we take them very seriously it is better to shed them and replace them with positive self-images with something that uh, where you have some resemblance to a human being with dignity and confidence and some hope and some willingness to live but in Dharma circles all of it has to go I mean <clears throat> good self-image and negative self-image or high self-esteem and low self-esteem are all still part of the same changing and extremely insecure and unstable realm that uh, finally is not fulfilling. When you enter this, this silence that's in your own uh, your own, uh, your own personal silence, in a sense, it isn't... I don't mean you claim it. You, uh, in your own heart, the silence in your own heart. One of the things that comes out of it is a, uh, an enhanced and intrinsic self-worth. The self-worth doesn't come from approval of others. You're not living off borrowed energy. People who teach, like us, we have to be very careful... You know, especially if you do a reasonably decent job and then people look at you and they say, "Oh, far out, fantastic, incredible, and so all that energy comes, it feels good, and then you strut away thinking that you're good, but you're living on borrowed energy. What happens when you give one bad dharma talk, not one joke, (laughs) or or 25 jokes and not one laugh? (laughs) Then suddenly they get a new candidate, they elect someone else, you're finished. Some younger Dharma teachers coming along, <laughs> who's funnier, smarter, and done more practice. He's been not only in Burma but Thailand, Cambodia, caves. He's been on top of trees and mountains. <laughs> okay. So where is your self, self stuff, gone? <laughs> what I'm talking about is not dependent on what, on the world. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. We're already, we're living like beggars, looking into other people's eyes. Am I okay? Am I okay? Am I brilliant? Am I handsome? Funny? Brilliant? I'm not. Why not? What can I do to change your expression? So it makes life a lot easier to just taste this even a little bit because then there's a source that uh, is intrinsic and it's not dependent on what others Think of us. This aspect of the practice of uh, learning how to enter into and live in silence, we do it, we soak it, we soak in it, we let it work on us, and then inevitably we return to activity. It's not meant as in opposition to action. And in the time remaining, I can only... uh, really hint at silence and action, but that's a major challenge in our practice. And if you don't take it on, you'll become a very strange kind of person. <laughs> really. And it's, it's mainly in meditative circles that these people are. I mean, I know it. I have been one. Maybe I still am. We become like hothouse plants. The only place we can be happy is on our little cushion at some little building that has some initials, you know, CIMC, IMS, uh, IB, you know, all all these different places. And there's that dirty, noisy world out there where they eat meat, and they, you know, they... (laughs) (laughs) And so we just scurry back to our cushion all the time, scurry out to IMS. Which is not to say that these aren't wonderful places to be. I'm here, right? So I obviously think so, and so are you. But it has to be used correctly. We are lay people. Uh, you know, there's a saying, get a life. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so that has to be taken out into the world. If we leave that silence that's developed, which is an, ex- an extraordinary energy, if we leave it on the cushion we become kind of non-hospitalizable schizophrenics <laughs> because the only place we can be happy is where we're very protected and where we, have, uh, where we do this. So bringing silence into action is what in, in our tradition is sometimes referred to as doerless doing. And I would say the crucial, um, the thrust of it, is that typically when we enter into any situation and any activity, uh, it ignites the ego. There is me, the sense of me or mine, I consciousness, is aroused. We're doing something and it's, it's automatic. It's not that we decide to do it. We, we're doing that through much of the day. And so when, we're, when there are activities, activities are happening, even a yogi job, whatever we're doing, somehow I comes into it. I'm doing the pots. I'm doing whatever it is that we're doing. Now, the practice uh, comes at this in a number of ways. Let me give you one uh, very basic way, and let me use a, an, a, an ancient exchange so, so, uh, from China. Someone asks uh, a asks master, what is enlightenment? And the answer is, uh, eating rice and drinking tea. Okay. How could that be it? Then let's all just get to the first Chinese restaurant we can find, <laughs> you know, and we'll all be set, right? I think you can eat as much rice and drink as much tea as you want, and it's not necessarily going to result in enlightenment. So what does he mean? Uh, it's from two angles, from two ends of a, of a continuum, I think. One, it's a practice When you eat rice, really eat rice. And when you drink tea, really drink tea. Now, that means be intimate with it. Uh, Do it. When you are fully and wholeheartedly doing something, without even intending it, the power of this selfing, this self-consciousness, goes into abeyance. So some of you have already done it. A few of you have noticed it. You've had maybe 40 seconds on your yogi job where you've been chopping vegetables, and you've been just chopping vegetables, and it's a wonderful feeling. Not because there's anything intrinsic in the vegetable or the knife, but because in that moment, you weren't doing it. There wasn't so much self-consciousness. Am I doing it right? The other people are watching. Maybe I'm cutting the carrots too thin, maybe too thick, or whatever it is that that arouses this self-consciousness. So when there's this undivided attention, we're practicing being intimate with what we're doing. No separation, which is on the way. But also what the teacher is saying is that from, uh, let's say you have an awakening and you're living in silence a good deal of the time, or perhaps there are some people who live in it all the time, when the heart is silent, means that all the attachment to me and mine has been brushed out. It's gone. Obviously, not going to be, there aren't a huge number of people like that in any generation. What is being said is, um, granted, let's say you have attained some depth in your meditation. Uh, Good. Now, can you manifest that? Can you manifest that in the ordinary world? Because if you can't, then it means we are like hothouse plants. That means we can only be free under certain specified conditions. And when those conditions change, and as you know, life is uncertain, and none of us get exactly what we want, and so it's us who have to change, because life uh, is not going to change for us. And so the practice becomes bringing your hard-earned development, the qualities that we all develop on retreats, and actually, uh, as one author put it, jumping into life. Uh, if we're afraid of living let's look at that if we can honestly conclude, and I think this is an extraordinary thing to do, I haven't found many people who do it when you're an adult to acknowledge, you know, I don't really know how to live I I really don't know how to live it's too humiliating here I am, I've got all these degrees and I I honestly do not fully know, I don't know how to live that's a wonderful place to be in not to demoralize you or to further uh, humiliate you but to give you this openness well how do I live now at this point let's say when we've tasted some it's also called clear mind it's also called no mind when it's very deep it's called stillness in action it's called doerless doing whatever language you like but the point is the action is coming not from a calculating mind all the time which is thinking about what it should do It has, let's say, norms and spiritual circles. There are all these ideals that we're always trying to reach. And, you know, we need them. They're helpful. But the actions are coming from the past, from the old mind. And more and more, practice is dying to the past, at least to the control that the past has over us. When the mind, a silent mind, why do we want a silent mind? Because a silent mind... Is fresh, it's alive, it's clear, it's innocent, it's young, no matter how old the body is. And all kinds of creative possibilities creative in the arts, in business, in science, and of course, the most creative of all, how to live. Okay, if you take that on as practice, come to IMS, come often, sit these retreats, go to other retreat centers, but please don't set it up. Uh, as a kind of hierarchy where this is where you do the real spiritual work and then uh, kind of glumly go back to your daily life that you crawled out of to get here, you know, kind of this, where this is a kind of a field hospital, you know, in wartime, you know, where people have been wounded in life and come crawling here. That's fine. This is here for that. But you know also what they do in, in the military? very often, not if you really need help, uh, a lot of it is psychological. They'll kind of, you know, fix you up a bit and then they send you out the other exit of the tent back into combat. What I'm trying to say is that uh, there's a dignity and an immense value in retreat life and in formal practice. But if we reify it, if we uh, turn it into uh, something to worship over and above, the rest of our life, particularly since we're lay people, which means that's most of our life, a very, very high percentage of our life, is doing what it is that we are so happy to get out of to get here. So that uh, won't work, in my opinion. I haven't seen it work too well. Rather, uh, not even begrudgingly going back to daily life, but take it on willingly. Then what you have is the greatest teacher of all, Life itself. I mean, life is constantly teaching us. If you practice awareness, you can't miss it. The lessons, the curriculum, it's all over the place. What's lacking are students. <laughs> okay, We have all the equipment. Awareness is the main one. The determination, the commitment, the willingness, the understanding of the value of paying attention so that we can learn. Now, a lot of the learning I'm talking about here is not Knowledge, that's valuable too. It's not to set that off as uh, the enemy. It isn't. But this is a direct experiential learning that comes from... Do you remember... Um, maybe we'll... We don't have too much time. you remember I mentioned one of the most subtle tricks that the mind plays on us? Is when we think we're observing, let's say, a very unpleasant energy, fear or anger or something we really don't like, rage, whatever it is, and we're not fully really observing it. It's just our brilliant intellect, which has read uh, Freud and Jung and Buddha and everyone. And it comes up with a brilliant explanation of why this is there and how it's all caused. And, and then you, you do feel better in that moment. You feel much better and you get up and it feels as if you don't have a problem. Uh, but that is all not, it's based in knowledge. Now, here is a, a very important point, I feel. We don't have faith in direct perception because we haven't used it much. So what we fall back on all the time is where we're strong. Most of us have had schooling. And so we fall back on the accumulation of knowledge. That will help us out. It is, of course, beautiful too. But in the problems that we're talking about, we've seen that that doesn't help you. There are limits to what knowledge can do, certainly in spiritual life. If that's where you think you're going to get your liberation from, it's hopeless. I mean, try it. Many have. They wind up here. You know, the French Foreign Legion. Last Chance Hotel, whatever you want to call this place. Okay. What I'm getting at in that moment, until you know that this uh, perception, direct perception, and here's another use of uh, um, humility. I find it a very helpful one for myself. Uh, it's very important for well-educated people. When you approach, let's say, any form of sorrow, can you approach it with the humility uh, that doesn't depend on everything that you've learned so far? If, can you drop all of that? That, that takes a, a lot of humility, that all the accumulated fantastic Buddhist insights and all the rest of it, Can you, it's don't know mind, it's beginner's mind. So you all know it's been talked about a lot. But I find humility is a, a very good way to talk about it as well. That means you're looking at it with the humility of, I don't know what this is. What is this? And you're looking at it very, very carefully with a fresh mind that doesn't have the pseudo-security of falling back on knowledge. It's the direct perception. That's what insight is. Seeing into, extraordinary, unusual perception, clear seeing. That seeing has no past or future in it. It is not based on what we know in terms of accumulations. It's based on what we see. Let me leave you with this. Oh, sorry, one quick one. Very important. It's just a matter of time. I'm very sorry. I'd like to go into it longer. Maybe we can sometime. Working with this sense of self in action, uh, when you are wholeheartedly involved in what you're doing, you may find that just that wholeheartedness weakens or breaks the momentum of me and mine, which is so rampant. And that you're really doing what you're doing. And in those moments, and they're often the happiest moments in our life, the full attention, the, uh, the full involvement in what we're doing brings a halt to the movement of me and mine. Temporarily, it's not uprooting it. so, in those moments, you're tasting doerless doing. But now there's another uh, mode of practice, and that is just live your life and whatever you're doing, but start becoming more sensitive to how me and mine turns up from moment to moment. If you begin to turn in that direction, you'll see it's quite a lot of fun. It really is. At first, it's humiliating because you see all these self-images that you fashioned and they, when you start looking and paying attention, they get smashed. That is, we don't really live the way our images have been fashioned to convince us that we live. And so a lot of those images get smashed and it can be quite humiliating. But then you can see this energy at work that is appropriating things all day long and that is, when you get hurt, who gets hurt? Me. When someone says you're very handsome, very brilliant... Who lights up and uh, feels fantastic? Me. Just watch that at work. And little by little, uh, if if there's mindfulness when me and mine enters into a moment, then its toxic toxic effect is minimized or even eliminated. So it's not that we're trying to kill me or mine, because what would that be like? It would be another me or mine that's trying to kill me or mine. (laughs) The ego is brilliant. You know that. So it's gentle, but more and more, it's becoming sensitive to how this process works and uh, becoming mindful of it when it's there. As you begin to do that, it starts to... You'll have more space, more, more space in your mind. And when you have more space, that space is filled with stillness. That's the stillness we've been talking about, which has endless dimensions to it. Finally, in uh, Japanese Zen they talk about Kensho, and what they mean by Kensho, it's a very beautiful term, is seeing into your true nature, seeing your true nature. Okay. Now, when the mind hears that, then it turns it into an object. Oh, I'll see my true nature, and it projects another object out there that someday it will get if it solves all of its koans or if it sits uninterruptedly. Uh, But Kensho is not, in other words, it's not that you see your true nature, that it's another something exciting and new and fresh out here. The seeing is your true nature. The hearing is your true nature. Do you see what what I'm getting at? So that finally, um, where the practice leads, all of our stories start, you can tell your stories and know them, we do have a biography, but they lose their hold. And where this is all moving, the the best term I can come up with, which helps me, is absolute presence. Uh, That's where it leads. In an absolute presence, I think that's somewhat what Kencho is driving at. Uh, Up until that point, we've concocted notions about who we are. We keep objectifying ourselves. But through mindfulness, you see that. And then more and more, finally you saw yourself off a branch. And you realize that you're awareness itself. Okay, could we have a few moments of silence, please? This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 12, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.